0: Welcome back to the OPEX podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Amy Bender. Amy is a senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center and an adjunct assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Calgary. On this episode, Amy and I discuss sleep optimization for health and performance. Guys, this is a fantastic conversation with Amy. I know you're going to love it. Stay with us. Amy Bender, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Just for the listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, give us the background.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Robbie. Um, I have a PhD in experimental psychology, specializing in sleep EEG. I um, went to school at Washington State University, got my master's and PhD working with uh, sleep deprived individuals and looking at their cognitive performance. And then transitioned to a postdoc focusing on athletic performance and working with Canadian Olympic team athletes, doing sleep screening, sleep optimization for various different athletes and teams, Uh, refined the athlete sleep screening questionnaire in the process. So that's a questionnaire we can maybe dive into. Mm. And then uh, currently I'm at Calgary Counseling Center as a research scientist trying to get into sleep interventions uh, to optimize mental health.
0: Wow, aggressive. so uh, you went to U- is UW, is that where you went? Uh, Washington State, go Cougs. Oh, Washington State, okay. <laughs> uh, where are you from originally, Amy? I'm from
1: Spokane, Washington. So I'm, I was born in Spokane, went to um, Spokane Community College, played basketball there. transferred to Cal State San Bernardino played basketball there and then came back to Spokane and did my graduate work and then now I'm actually in Calgary been here for almost four years now and uh, really enjoying it up here
0: and like long term just a a purely just a, a question of my own part do you see yourself staying in Calgary long term just with the family and whatnot
1: I do. We're really into, my husband's really into skiing, um, nice. outdoor activities, hiking, that kind of thing. And this is just perfect for that. You know, we're an hour away from just epic nature.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds amazing. Just fill us in, so on your current research, you just touched on there at mental health, and then we can get into things like, your influences and then obviously topics that we want to cover today that pertain to, you know, athletic performance. And then if we can get into some things then around health and longevity, I know sleep cycles was definitely something that I wanted to ask you about as well as the, 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 the bucket list of questions I sent you over Twitter, but maybe just uh, start off with your current work and, and research into sleep and mental health.
1: Sure. Well, we are working our way towards, um, using sleep intervention, so potentially insomnia interventions. A lot of people with mental health problems have insomnia, so they have troubles falling asleep, they have troubles maintaining sleep. And previous research has shown that techniques such as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has shown promising results when it comes to mental health outcomes. Here at Calgary Counseling Center, we're unique. We have the largest database, over 35,000 individuals where we've tracked their outcomes. So they come into the center, they fill out an outcome questionnaire on a tablet, and it automatically gets sent to our database. And then we're tracking their counseling and their outcomes all throughout their treatment process Uh, so we're really unique to be able to capture that and we hope to be able to use that system potentially doing um, sleep interventions in this population as well as other research projects that we're working on
0: bit ironic they do their questionnaire on a tablet yeah
1: yeah no it's 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 great for us because um, you know they fill it out it automatically all the data gets submitted electronically and there's no paper versions that we're working with
0: did you say you've five thousand data points so far so for is that like 30 35,000 individuals you've collected data from am i correct yes
1: yes wow. that is correct
0: holy smokes that's a great database yeah it sounds because i recently just finished the pro i'm doing a masters at the moment um and it's actually in strength and conditioning but one of the assignments we had to do was to design a website and put up four articles and two of them had to be academic ones and one of the articles i decided to do was circadian disruption in obesity and type 2 diabetes but obviously when researching for that i came across a lot of literature on you know circadian disruption and mental um, um mental illness which I, I i'd already knew about i knew there was a link there but i never read into the research and you know just like the amount of research out there on circadian disruption and psychiatric disorders. And I mean, when you look into it mechanistically, you know, it obviously makes sense. Like, I mean, when you disrupt your circadian rhythm, like it messes with just everything. Cause obviously, mm-hmm. right? so obviously circadian biology rules all, which, w- which we can definitely get into. Um, yeah. If you to that there, go. going, I was going to ask you another question, but if you want to add to that, you can.
1: Yes. I think, I think that uh, the circadian rhythm, link and with mood disorders is very interesting. There was some recent research that came out showing that the antidepressants work as a way to sensitize the person to light, and so the timing of those medications are important. Potentially taking those in the morning may be more beneficial versus at night, which could exacerbate the problem. And, and um, delay your circadian rhythm. But I think more research in this area needs to be done. That was just a recent study that came out. And we need more, definitely more research in this area to look at the links between circadian rhythm and mood disorders.
0: Just touching on caffeine there, you were saying it acts as an antidepressant, but obviously there needs to be a consideration of the timing of caffeine because with some people, particularly sensitive people, that can delay their sleep onset. So, you know, a lot of people recommend not to take caffeine then in the afternoon for people who are slow metabolizers of it. So, like, what's your, your, um, your, your sort of thought process there?
1: I'm huge on decaf. Um, I'm, I know how it can imp- impact your sleep and your sleep quality. There was even a study showing that a 7 a.m. administration of 200 milligrams of caffeine impacts your ability to fall asleep at night, and also that quality of sleep. So it affected how much how much deep sleep or the deep sleep brain waves that you were getting. Um, so people need to be careful with caffeine. I think they need to use it strategically, not automatically. And so for myself, I mean, I have three little kids, so definitely when my youngest was a newborn, I was still drinking coffee, but I've been off coffee. I've transitioned to decaf, and I wake up feeling refreshed. Um, I just feel like I'm getting a better quality sleep. And I think you're right, that does have to do with potentially how you metabolize the caffeine. So, about 50% of us are slow metabolizers, 50% of us are fast metabolizers. So, in those fast metabolizers, it may not be as big of a problem. Um, but I think the work by Nancy Guest, I don't know if you, you caught that paper or not, but she looked at uh, trained cyclists, so they did a time trial, gave them caffeine, and then looked at their genotype to see how it impacted performance. And they found that in the slow metabolizers, it actually um, decreased performance, they were actually slower than those fast metabolizers where it was really working. So being cognizant of that is really important.
0: Like I, in my own research, I came across a study. Now it was it's an old study. It was from the early '80s, and they showed that the difference between like the range between the metabolic um, the metabolism of caffeine ranged anywhere from was like two point two to like nine point seven hours. Mm hmm. So that like, makes sense. Yeah. Like, so just for like, you could get someone ingesting caffeine like within four hours of their bedtime, they were fine. You get someone else ingesting it like nine hours before their bedtime, and it would still have an impact on their sleep onset or quality. So it's mad. Yes.
1: Yes. And I think, I think, so if we look at that study in more detail, the 7 a.m. 200 milligrams, these were in, you know, one to two cup drinkers of coffee. Um, But prior to the study, they were off of caffeine for, I believe it was two days. Um, So your caffeine history, I think, also plays a role into how that will impact your sleep at night.
0: And just before we move on, you mentioned that, um caffeine has an anti the antidepressive effect what 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 is the mechanism for that is it something to do with adenosine in the in the brain or like how how does caffeine help with depression it's
1: interesting i mean my my hypothesis is that it could impact uh sleep quality which would then exacerbate depression and mood disorders but and there may be some phenotypes you know the research isn't isn't Exactly clear cut, but a recent meta-analysis showed, and that's looking at all the different studies, looking at caffeine, um, did show a a a good effect of caffeine on mood disorders, and and I'm kind of putting those connections together based on a different study that showed um, caffeine has an impact on circadian rhythm. In itself so this could be a strategy for jet lag for example yeah, yeah. and um, and so depending on the timing so in this study by uh, Ken Wright they found that an evening administration of caffeine delayed the circadian rhythm in those individuals so it might be good for someone traveling West to incorporate that and and um, in general caffeine is um, the way? It, yeah, I'm not sure exactly exactly how it works, but I believe it's related to making more sensitive to light, which then impacts your circadian rhythm downstream.
0: Okay, okay. Because so it was a, initially in hearing that, it sounds like a bit of a dichotomy and all that. You know, like caffeine has this detrimental impact on um you know sleep onset and circadian disruption, but yet there's some research saying that it's an antidepressant so yeah, it kind of seems a bit a bit uh as i said a bit of a dichotomy but it's interesting mm-hmm. to, it definitely mm-hmm. for sure so amy one question i always ask um guests that i always get on the podcast is about their influences who, who being the biggest influences on you both personally and professionally
1: mm-hmm. um i would say i mean absolutely my parents have been in an big influence on me. I grew up with four brothers. We had a big family. One of my brothers uh, was special needs and so he had Down syndrome. He had a stroke when he was two. He had diabetes. And so um, showing like how hard my parents had to work and with, you know just taking care of him was amazing. For me to be able to see that injure himself was amazing, you know, working hard with his disabilities. Unfortunately, he passed away about almost 15 years ago, but um, that was definitely a personal influencer of mine. I would say professionally, I was trained in a world-class sleep center and at, from the beginning, so at Washington State University, they We were opening up the sleep lab to look at sleep deprivation effects on cognition. And I just so happened to luckily get the job as a sleep technologist and worked as a sleep technologist for a few years before transitioning to graduate school. And so I was working with Hans Van Dongen and Greg Belenke, who are one of, like, you know, the top 10 sleep researchers in the world, and just kind of seeing how. Meticulous they are with the experiments, and how you know we need to control for this and we need to control for that, and even just all the way down to details such as I remember we were doing our first mock um, sleep study where we we're just testing out the equipment, you know, making sure everything's working properly. And he, you know, Dr. Van Dyne, said, Okay, yeah, make sure you put the sign up on the door that says you know, testing in progress. And so I did that and it ended up being a little bit crooked. (laughs) And, um, you know, he said to me, he's like, you know, we need things to be precise and, you know, go fix that. And so even just from that, that, those type of learning experiences and understanding how, if you want good research, you need to be very detailed, very meticulous and control, um, as much as you can to get the best kind of results
0: what awesome names <laughs> yes
1: yes yeah
0: you, they don't, are. You, don't, you don't hear those names every day so you don't maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why he was a bit cranky he didn't like his name Go fix Maybe, that could be, could be. That's <laughs> no, it's great stuff. Liz, how, uh, how I initially came across you and your work was actually through Ian Dunican. And then from that, um, I listened to your interview with Danny Lennon, who's a very good friend of mine, fellow Irishman. Um, Danny obviously has Sigma Nutrition Radio. But Ian told me to get in contact with you because when I had Ian on my own podcast, the topic of sleep cycles came up. And he goes, I'll tell you what, speak to Amy Bender, she'll fill you in on everything you need to know about sleep cycles. So that's what I've done. And basically what Ian kind of uh, um, made me aware was that, listen, this whole idea that, you know, a sleep cycle is exactly 90 minutes and this is his composition and you go through all these sleep cycles over the course of the night. He's like, it's not fully true. Like He says, that's not really exactly what's going on. And he says a lot of people kind of sprout that out there as if it's like, you know, 100% fact. So... Mm-hmm. Fill us in on sleep cycles. You know what's the I I basically in our question over Twitter said sleep cycles facts and fiction. So, what's separate the you know the the facts from the fictions if you can regarding sleep cycles.
1: Mm -hmm. That's funny. Um, I think Ian asked me to do a blog post for him um, a while ago, and I haven't quite gotten to that on this specific topic. There are sleep calculators out there where, and there's famous uh, sleep coach, uh, working with Manchester United, working with all of these professional teams that goes, you know, that that really thinks that sleep cycles occur in 90-minute increments, you know, every single time. But it, knowing, so I've worked, I've probably scored over a thousand sleep records. And so I'm looking at the electrical activity of the brain, I'm looking at movement, I'm looking at muscle activity, eye activity, to be able to score what stage of sleep they're in, whether or not they're awake or not. And um, we know that we start off in non-REM sleep, and then roughly between 70 and 110 minutes, we will then cycle into REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. Um, But it doesn't occur, it's not a cookie cutter type of thing. And I actually, uh, I have a post on Twitter on this um, where I compare the sleep cycle of someone sleeping at night, their sleep cycle or their sleep architecture, how they go through the night versus the same person sleeping during the day. And it's very, very different. And those examples, I had to sift through hundreds of different um People sleeping in the lab to find that good of an example for the most part for the most part when I'm looking through these um, records it's it may be you know 60 minutes they get into REM um, depending on whether or not let's say they exercised the deeper stages of sleep are going to be much longer before you get to that REM period if they're drinking caffeine, that impacts it. If they took a nap, that impacts it. You can't just um, take your time in bed and you know subtract in 90-minute increments to figure out the best time that you should go to sleep so that you'll wake up within a non-REM, or sorry, a REM sleep cycle. So it's it's really complicated. You can't really control it. Um, and it's basically fiction when someone's trying to do those types of calculations.
0: Yeah. So like anything, every question needs context, you know, so when someone, when, when someone's like asking your opinion on a particular topic you're like, you know, you, you need like a lot of context around every question so you can give a, mm-hmm. a fairly detailed answer in, in fairness to and Nick Littlehales is is the sleep researcher. I actually had Nick on my own podcast as well at the time. Like, in fairness to Nick, like, you know, you read, like, even Matthew Walker's book, he says it's a 90-minute cycle. You read, like, a lot of physiology textbooks, they say it's 90-minute cycles. And, like, you know, it, it's just... it's, it's not as, And it's not as if, like, Matthew Walker or the textbooks are saying it's 90 minutes and that's it. It's just a general guideline, and I think that just that just needs to be kept in mind too. And as you kind of alluded to, listen to it, there's so many factors that then impact on the length of these cycles and then the compositions between non REM and REM, as you said, they're like someone in, again, as we spoke about already the intake of caffeine, like, like what, what, like even just nutrition itself is another thing, which we'll talk about as well later. If we get a chance, like I'm very fascinated with this, you know, compositions of meals before going to sleep. Cause just on a a purely individual level i've always found a lot of difference in my sleep if i have a high carb meal versus a high fat meal versus fast before i go to bed Mm -hmm. so it's an area i'm very interested in which i'll definitely ask about your opinion on in just a few minutes but before we go into that i definitely want to ask your thoughts on peripheral circadian regulators so meal timing would be one exercise timing just for the listeners, in our body we have central and peripheral regulators of our circadian rhythm. the main one is your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is in your brain, and <laughs> mainly dictated by light and dark. And if I say mm-hmm. out of, out of uh, that's not correct here, you can obviously correct me. Um, so the central regulator is it's in your it's in your ta- your thalamus, your hypothalamus, and that's mainly mm-hmm. regu- mainly regulated by light and dark. So I, like I was aware of that, and I was aware because I altered off suprachiasmatic nucleus SCN SCN, and then. I came across like that there's actually these peripheral regulators. So by peripheral regulators you have clocks in your peripheral tissues, like, you know, your liver and your pancreas, and your skeletal muscles, et cetera. And that there's these external cues that you can give them, like the timing of a meal, timing of exercise. Some people used to say even social interaction, but Great Potter told me that, that that's not, quite as solid as it, as it was once taught but definitely mealtime seems to be one so can you just maybe speak about like peripheral circadian regulators and how maybe these can be used to enhance athletic performance or if someone had the go- more of a goal of this and i just want to like have a long healthy life what would you suggest from these circadian regulators from a peripheral standpoint like should i be having my meals at certain times a day take it away
1: I think that um, if we're talking about, let's say preparation for jet lag, that these peripheral clocks are very important. And so what um, the number one symptom of jet lag is gastrointestinal upset or distress. Um, So I think incorporating meal timing into your, let's say, jet lag planning is really important because if you delay that eating schedule, um, you're gonna, you're gonna impact. It's, it's not going to impact your master regulator, but it is going to impact how hormones are being released. You know, so it'll be delayed according to your new time zone if you delay meal timing. So I think um, that's an important aspect: is to potentially use it as a jet lag strategy. Mm. As far as it impacting your master clock, um, we, there is not good evidence to show that it does. So you need more of the light, dark activity in order to influence when melatonin will be released, for example. With regard to exercise, there was a new study that came out showing, depending on when you're exercising, that has an impact, now this isn't peripheral, but it has an impact on your master master clock, let's say. Um, so if you're exercising in the morning, it's going to um, advance your circadian rhythm to make you more of that early bird. If you're ex- exercising in the evening, it's going to delay your circadian rhythm, and this is independent of light, dark activity, Um, So in this particular study, they controlled the light, had really low light levels, showing that, um, you know, exercise, if you don't want to be a night owl, you may want to time your exercise earlier in the day versus, you know, between that 7 to 9 p.m. period
0: and just in terms of actual meal timings let's just say on the average joe and jane and i'm just trying to live as healthy as i can so again say the goal is longevity where do where where would things like the meal timing and exercise timing um like where would they fall into this and let's just say from a sleep hygiene circadian rhythm standpoint from the master regulator they have that pretty dialed in you know they have a good sleep routine they sleep well mm-hmm. and they're just kind of looking for that extra edge in, in terms of just overall health and maybe cognitive performance um I mean, i will ask about athletic performance in just a moment. But what—what what would your suggestions be there with—mealtime? With, with because I see a lot of people. I remember years ago a book written by a guy, I think Brian Richards was his name. He had a book called Master in Leptin, and Left, and he—his whole thing was that, like, if you're just someone who's just looking to live, you know, to a hundred, you know, longevity basically is your goal. He was just like meal timing's important and he was like you should try and just have a breakfast a lunch and a dinner there should be spaced out and he he was saying it was very important for the regulation of like you know li- with liver metabolism and so mm-hmm. he, he didn't mm-hmm. use, he didn't use the term peripheral clocks in the book because the book's it's a good few years old now but that's kind of maybe what he was alluding to if we're looking at true a, a current lens but what what are your thoughts then on just like these peripheral regulators like in terms of like optimizing them for people who just want to live you know long and prosper
1: Yes, I think um, meal timing. No, I'm I'm not a time restricted feeding expert by any means, but um, I would say general advice would be to eat a meal within an hour of awakening, mm. um, and then getting lots of light in the morning to help uh, strengthen your circadian rhythm, and then to eat your meals, you know, at the same time every day. Um, and again, you know, I'm not a a nutrition expert per se, I'm a sleep expert, but in general, yeah, you want to, as soon as you wake up, um, start the meal and then that gets those liver clocks running and your metabolism going and trying to time those meals at the same time every day so that your body anticipates when, um, when it needs to be functioning when those peripheral clocks need to be functioning
0: yeah because the, the 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 sort of again the what's happened a lot lately is so obviously you alluded to time restricted feeding there it has become very popular but what a lot of people on a time refric- on a time restricted feeding schedule do is they usually have their biggest meal later at night time and mm-hmm. and you know from speaking with greg potter and then the work with you know some of the work with sachin panda um, like Greg alluded to a, uh, a research um, study where they had two groups and they were you know, isocaloric or if that's what the study said, but that one group had the majority of their calories during the daylight hours, whereas the other group kind of had more of their calories towards the end of the day, where it was getting towards the evening and nighttime and that the group that had more of their calories in the earlier part of the day had more favorable weight loss and body composition outcomes. And the mechanism for that was because the metabolic machinery is more set up to digest and utilize nutrition more often during our active period over the 24 hour cycle. So like daylight hours for humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Sachin Panda's work kind of showed that if he like his latest one, I think it was, was, he had 20, a 24 a 20 hour feeding window with four hour fast against the 12, 12 in, in mice. And he basically said that like, it really doesn't matter what they what what but the basic takeaway from sassins research was like it it isn't so much really what you eat it's when you eat it and his whole thing was like the 12 12 mice were fine whereas the 24 ad libitum who ate, and and he said that they were eating pretty quality food in terms of mice food for, for <laughs> he was like they got really really sick um so this, I suppose, what's kind of coming through all this research, is it's nearly not so much what you're eating. Obviously, you know, composition of food is is important, but it's also this timing seems to be really, really important. And again, the sort of issue here is that most, most people who do do time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, they usually backload their calories to like dinner because again, it's more of a social thing. They can sit down with their family, but apparently, from a circadian rhythm standpoint and an optimal health standpoint, that doesn't seem to be the best way to go from what I've heard from like the likes of Greg Potter and and Sachin Panda. Have mm-hmm. you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on that yourself?
1: I think if you take if you take the extreme example, so a night shift worker who's eating during during the night, um, we see uh, greater risk for obesity, yeah. greater risk for diabetes, you know, so there's definitely something to that where Uh, the timing of your meal. So in the extreme example, in during the night, um, our body is just not designed to metabolize the food properly, Mm. digest it. Um, And then also, if you look at an example of let's say someone who's has a really big meal right before bed, what we'll see in those individuals is that there, you know, uh, the night is a time for rest, sleep is a time for rest. It's not about digesting food, you know, right before bed or during the middle of the night. And so, we'll see more likelihood for sleep apnea, where those um, juices and chemicals are being kind of sucked up through the throat, and people are having more sleep disordered breathing with those large meals heavy meals right before bedtime yeah, can yeah. Be problematic
0: yeah like uh, like again i could definitely see an issue where someone like is a shift worker and they're eating a lot of food like at 2 3 4 5 a.m like during their shift i suppose what most people kind of want to know as well is it really detrimental to have my dinner at like 8 p.m versus 6 p.m you know and i'm still going to bed at 10 and i suppose that comes down to the composition of the meal and ha- the volume of the meal and stuff like that mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also the one thing i brought up with greg when we had our discussion was like none of these studies i think are looking at potential mitigating factors so like because of the way so- so- society is set up like most amateur sports players like they've got like training at like 7 thirty, eight p.m like over here in ireland anyway like most training sessions with teams over here be they games or soccer or rugby like they usually have their train sessions like at 7 8 p.m at night and then oh, yeah. they'd be having like a post you know a post training meal then and sometimes that meal wouldn't be till 9 or 10 and my sort of question to greg is like you know what sort of detriment does that potentially have and again i suppose the question we also need to listen sport isn't healthy either so like you know is is what they're doing awful for health probably not but is the mitigating factor of the exercise you know before the meal the training session like is that maybe potentially like is it like re-stimulating some potential metabolic processes like you know the pancreas is 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 in a position now to actually secrete you know digestive enzymes because of the the training session happened before whereas if you were just if you didn't do any exercise and then you had a big meal, the pancreas would be like, what the hell's going on here? Do you know what I'm kind of getting at? So maybe like, you know, like is, is the exercise mitigating having a meal later at night? Whereas if, if it was just, re- just someone eating late at night, because it was just more out of habit, like is, is the exercise mitigating some of the, the detriments that could potentially have from mm-hmm. a circadian destruction yeah. standpoint? So like, I mean, I there, think- there are questions like, that like, you know, we, that could potentially need to be answered as well.
1: Absolutely. I don't think we know the answer to that. I think it's a good question and something to explore. Um, How, how, how does this exercise impact, impact that, Um, you know, most people aren't hitting the gym at 9 PM, whereas a professional athlete might do that. And I think for those individuals, you know, if you're, if you're primarily playing in the evening, let's take the National Basketball Association, the NBA, you know, having, and even the hockey NHL, having them shift their rhythms to be more on that uh, evening schedule would be something important. So if they're playing a game at 8 p.m. at night, you know, they may not go to bed until 3 a.m., Mm. but as long as they're not having to get up at 7 a.m you know maybe that's not quite maybe it's not that bad of a problem
0: yeah yeah and listen i asked that question purely just from like how can we like how can we diminish the the, the detrimental impacts of that because again i just want to make sure for the listeners on this like that's not healthy <laughs> like 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 exercising, like or playing like like exercising at 7 8 9 p.m particularly if it's dark under bright artificial lights and then having Mm -hmm. and then having a meal is not healthy but if we were just trying to optimize performance that's kind of what i'm getting more towards and i'm just getting and i'm also trying to just in my own mind think does the exercise itself does it like attenuate to a certain degree the detriment of eating so late at night and then but then i suppose exercising that late night is is detrimental in itself so it's, <laughs> it's all not great anyway the key thing is that listen like there's going to be a trade-off between sport and health as as we've talked before on this on this show and it just comes down to people's priorities if people are willing to, for those trade-offs that's fair enough um pre-bedtime meal composition. I know there's no research in this, but I sent you this question and that we alluded to just slightly earlier on. I just personally on an n one have noticed that I have very different, um, I suppose, just, I've just noticed big differences in my sleep quality, particularly dreams too, um, and the depth of my sleep from what I had you know, pre-nutrition before going to bed. So like, you know, a high carb, low fat meal versus a high fat, low carb meal versus if I just fasted a few hours before I went to bed, I've noticed different things. And this is what I've noticed is that if I have a lot of carbs pre-bed, I get wacky out dreams for whatever reason. If I have a high fat meal, I get a real deep sleep, but no real wacky dreams. And then fasted, like I just wake up and nothing like I, it's like it's like i just fell asleep muck up and nothing happened in between but whenever i've got a lot of carbohydrates pre-bed i get like crazy ass dreams and then fat is kind of in between and fast Now that's just an one with me but is there any research or have you do you have any thoughts on like how pre-bed bedtime meal composition went there that meal could be two or three hours before your bed or it could be maybe a snack right before bed but any ideas to to what you you think there, or is there any any research you've seen on that
1: You are actually spot on. So what the research finds is that deep sleep is increased with low carb, high fat. And again, there's not a lot of research in this area, but that's kind of the results that they generally see. And that rapid eye movement sleep or that dreaming state of sleep increases with high carb, low fat. Um, And then sleep latency also decreases with high carb, low fat. So if you're if you're on a low low carb, high fat, you may have issues with um, being able to, the ability to fall asleep or maintain sleep, but your deep sleep is increased. So you're getting more of that growth hormone release, let's say, mm. versus a high high carb, low fat, where we see increases in REM, and then also decrease in the ability to fall asleep. That time timing to uh fall asleep is kind of what we generally see in the research
0: wow that's, yeah that's pretty much kind of goes to what i what i've noticed in myself yeah great stuff amy if if i was to put you in charge of the future of building architecture so like you know going forward and like i was like all right amy bender you're going to be in charge of how buildings are going to be built from now on around the world to, <laughs> to optimize human health how would you how would you design those buildings and why
1: oh very interesting question um i mean so you're talking light specifically yeah because yeah,
0: because during my research into circadian uh when i was doing that research project on circadian disruption with obesity and type 2 diabetes uh human-centric lighting was a big thing you know um you know so like because in my mind i was always like why can't we just like make indoor lighting like the the, the sun? Like I know it's still not <laughs> going to be I, I know it's not going to be the sun, but like to give off all the spectrums of light, so like that people are at least in, they're getting the full spectrum of light. Because th- the problem is nowadays that we spend all all our time during the day indoors, and you know I, I love this analogy. I can't remember who said it now. M- maybe it was Jack Cruz, but I'm sure someone else said it too. Th- basically, the analogy was like our light. Nutrition is the equivalent of a junk food dietary nutrition. You know, it's like the equivalent of us just going down eating McDonald's and KFC. Mm-hmm. Like that's basically what people's like light nutrition is because we're just inside all day. Usually, it's just under blue light all the time, and we're not getting the full spectrum. Like we need to, you need to get the full spectrum of light. Like 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 you get all your vitamins and minerals and you know your macros and your micros for your nutrition. Same with light. So I came across this thing of human-centric lighting, and I was just like, why? Like, is this not like why don't we just i know i know it is being done to a certain degree but like it's like why is this not like just done now already because it's so (laughs) like light is so important and then the other thing too is like heating because obviously you know the body obviously the other big regulator to the to the to to an organism to tell the different seasons is apart from light cycles is obviously temperature cycles so you know we're like as i said to you over twitter like this you know humans nowadays lack seasonality like so it's it's just perpetual endless summer that we're always in we have Lighted, lighted homes or we're indoors all the time with lights on 24 7 we have the heating on all the time and then also we have global transports of foods so we never eat foods that like we can constantly eat foods that are out of season i mean like in ireland like you can be there eating pineapple and banana first of all they don't even grow in ireland and second of all in terms of their like light density you know, in the, in the environments they grow in, it's so far removed from what you should be eating as an Irish person, just as an example. So the fact that we have lights 24-7, 365 days a year, heated homes, and like just, you know, foods that we shouldn't be eating at certain times of year available all the time, like this lack of seasonality and variability seems to be like a big issue with regards to like human longevity and health and whatnot. And so just with regards to the architecture of buildings, like what, what would you like to see done on that level?
1: Absolutely, I think human centric lighting is the future. I mean, I think it it should be here now, and there are there are ways to I think the Phillips hue light bulb um there's a way to program that so that at a certain time of day you can filter out all of the blue light and have more of that orange, you know sunset type of light. So there are ways to do it. I think uh, the research shows that those who working, those who are working in offices without windows, they actually show poor sleep quality than those who have a window in their office. And so that light is really important to signal to our brains to be alert. And then also, you know, as that sun sets, it's good to filter out some of that blue light. And so absolutely, I think for the future, buildings need to be designed to have more of that bright blue enriched light in the mornings and then kind of mimic what the sun is doing. So as that sun is setting, you're filtering out some of that blue light. And in studies in nursing homes, they found that even just that that slight change of, you know, there's those bright artificial, bright white blue lights in nursing homes and they were continuously having that type of color. And then when they switched to more of the warmer color lights, At night, they found huge improvements in their uh, sleep quality and their sleep health. So absolutely, I think people should definitely be be looking at that if they want to optimize health. With regard to temperature, there's not a lot. And we know that temperature, we know that our body temperature drops with uh, sleep onset. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely important. You want to have a cool environment. A cool sleeping environment that's really important Um, but that's that is an untapped area in in sleep research right now I think more needs to be done to look at that if you look at pre-industrial societies where they have no access to electricity you know tribes in Africa tribes in South America they find that their sleep wake cycles are dependent on temperature drops. You know, they're typically at, uh, at the equator, so there's not a lot of change across the seasons, mm. but they find that it's not about the light per se that promotes when they'll go to sleep and when they'll wake up. It's more about um, temperature. So I think this is a really fascinating area that needs to be explored
0: chronotypes give me your thoughts
1: yes uh, well about fifteen percent of us are more of that evening type night owl you know wanting to go to bed after midnight uh, about fifteen percent of us are morning types wanting to wake up before 6 a.m and then kind of the rest of us fall in between we're more of that intermediate type um, trying to sleep in line with your chronotype is is important if you can, so if you're more of that night owl to not try and force yourself to go to bed early, you know, unless there is a societal responsibility, which most of us have, um, society is geared towards being more of that morning type, you know, starting work at 8 30 a.m., um, you know, so the night owls do have a tough time in, in society, and we find that also in athletes that we've worked with, is that the night owls tend to have poor sleep quality. Um, and so it's important to align your chronotype with your sleep wake activity if you can, but if you can't, to try and um, potentially take melatonin if you're more of that evening type, really low dose, we're talking 0.5 milligrams to help shift your circadian rhythm earlier, to try and block light at night. So again, we're sensitive to light at night if you're if you're in bright light conditions at night it's going to shift your circadian rhythm later so trying to block light at night get more of you know limit your electronic device use potentially use blue blocking glasses may be important for those night owls and then getting lots of light in the morning will help advance their rhythm earlier um, those would be kind of my my tips for for chronotypes <laughs>
0: Just regards to the statistics you shared there, so fifteen percent for owl and, and larks, and then the rest are sort of in between. Where where are you getting those statistics?
1: Oh, there's papers. I mean, i um, technically it may be like you know eighteen percent night owl, fourteen yeah, yeah, percent. Yeah. But yeah, no general. I can send you a link to a paper. Yeah, that'd be
0: great. About. I I stick all that stuff into the show notes. So, um, um which just going off chronotypes there do you think as well just on a societal level you know we spoke about human-centric gliding in regards to you know the, the future of, of buildings and um, do you also think too that you know in terms of just like work environment flexible time schedules really are a way to go as well to accommodate for the different chronotypes i know like a lot of schools now have started to appreciate listen adolescents like they're their clocks shift and, and like we need to have later start times you know just not even from an academic performance standpoint but even just a safety standpoint you, know, you get these kids sleep deprived driving to school like or, or whatnot like you know what I mean uh, and in Matthew Walker's book I think he actually said that you know um that incidence of car crashes like decreased a lot in schools that, that brought their, mm-hmm. their their times back and then obviously academic performance as well also went up because the, the brain was switched on more so do you, do you think too just that flexible time schedules to accommodate for chronotypes is, is something that we should definitely embrace in the future
1: yes one thing one thing i didn't mention was um that our chronotype changes as across the lifespan so as you mentioned Adolescents are more of the evening chronotype, so they're, they're more of the night owl type. Mm. Um, we'll start off in childhood as an early bird, then we'll kind of transition to more of that night owl, and then transition back into the early bird. Kind of that's our general pattern. Um, so absolutely flexible, flexible schedules at work. You know, people find people find those schedules that, with those schedules, they're more productive because they can alter it a little bit. You know, they could come in at 10 a.m. versus, you know, 8.30. Um, And then when we look at the literature on delayed school start times, you're, you're absolutely right that we see decreases in, with a school start time delay, we see decreases in car crashes, car accidents, on the way to school line with adolescent biology and so it just creates a whole host of, of good things that are happening when we can delay those times a little bit
0: yeah great stuff um i want the listeners to be able to you know walk away with with sort of you know something tangible here so in terms of how to optimize sleep and their sleep environment you know, what sort of guidelines would you offer? And then also, Amy, how much sleep should someone, should someone be getting? You know, we we hear like a lot of people saying, oh, you only need five, six hours and whatnot. But a lot of the, you know, the experts and a lot of the research coming out now seems to be in this ballpark of anywhere from seven to nine, seven to nine, some some even say seven to 10, it's was to been on the individual. So just two questions there for you. How much sleep should people be getting i know it's going to be kind of a range and then what are the top sort of strategies you utilize to optimize sleep
1: yes when we're talking about sleep quantity the general recommendation for an adult is seven to nine hours so you're right on that front um there's a lot of individual variability within there but generally most people Um, find that the seven to nine hour mark is is what they need, literally less than 1% of the population can get by on six hours or less of sleep and have no performance decrements. So if you think you're one of those people that, oh, I can get by on six hours, I'm fine, the likelihood is very, very slim that that's the case. So you should be aiming for that minimum seven hours
0: yeah I think I I think Matthew Walker Joe Rogan's podcast he said something like if you took if you rounded everyone up who can function on six hours of sleep as a whole number and he he said something like and he divided by something something he says your answer is zero (laughs) and Joe Rogan's like started laughing (laughs)
1: yes if you round up to the nearest whole number you know it ends up being zero yeah um and I think that's interesting because what happens is once we're once we start to become sleep deprived we have a hard time judging whether or not our performance is affected mm-hmm. and so that's part of it you know we think we can get by but really you're you're impaired based on that pattern of of poor sleep you know leading into this this period so absolutely, I think people should be aiming for seven to nine hours. For an ad- adolescent, it's more like eight to ten. You know, and as you get younger, you need more sleep. If we're talking about athletes specifically, there may be something to um, training load. So, mm-hmm. if you have a long run, you need you may need more sleep than if you're, for example, if you're a power lifter or something along those lines. Um, so training load has an, an important factor for sleep quantity. Um, if we're talking about ways to optimize, we do need to think in terms of and I, I didn't I've been talking a lot about sleep quality, so we need to think in terms of sleep quantity, so that minimum amount of sleep that you need to get between seven and nine. and then, Look at ways to improve our sleep quality. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, getting lots of light in the morning um, has an effect on our circadian rhythm and helps us have more of that quality sleep, sends a better signal for melatonin release, helps us, you know, sleep through the night, stay asleep, those kind of things. Yeah, so, getting yeah. lots of light in the morning and limiting that light when the sun goes down, you know, because we don't want that alerting effect of light to tell us to be awake, reduce our melatonin. That's really important. Um, Napping may be a good strategy. So in those individuals who maybe they uh, have to train really early in the morning, trying to supplement with a nap during the day is, is shown to be really, really great for productivity and alertness. And depending on how much time you have, you may want to limit that nap to less than 30 minutes so that you're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep. But if you have more of that longer opportunity, again, 70 to 100 minutes, you know, I'm not going to say 90 per se, but try and wake up naturally after a completed sleep cycle. Um, Try not to hit the snooze. You know, maybe you could set an emergency alarm for that type of nap if you have a longer nap
0: opportunity
1: um what else let's see what
0: else can i say about um just even so optimization i i I think what like what's very important like I, i think a lot of people when they hear about optimizing their sleep they only kind of think about just as they're going to bed so i think a lot of people understand All right, dim light you know maybe have a wind down routine you know half an hour or an hour before bed you know journal yeah wear blue light blockers you know cover up my skin if I'm around artificial light because the skin can pick up light as well keep the Mm -hmm. room cool you know a warm shower because it could help drop your body temperature all that stuff. but I think what a lot of people don't appreciate because I didn't appreciate this too was that early a.m. sunlight because there's a lot of papers to show like early a.m. exposure really helps with sleep onset and the release of melatonin and then the quality and quantity of the sleep so I, I think that that is a big one that a lot of people overlook that really your sleep starts in that morning like it's it, you're 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 like you're optimizing your bedtime from the morning from the get-go rather than people kind of thinking, oh i optimize sleep just now before i go to bed i think because i fell into that trap whereas like it's kind of like no like you're you're like the minute you get up your 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 whole day you're, you're planning towards going to bed that night you know
1: Mm-hmm. absolutely getting that that really early morning light is important before noon typically yeah. you know about 30 minutes outside just because um outside light is way more powerful has way more light lux than lux. indoor lighting um You know, exercise, so you're right, you need to think about the entire day when it comes to your sleep at night. You can't just, you know, flip a switch and expect to fall asleep Mm. right away. So you gotta think about um, light exposure, exercise, and then a few hours before bedtime, as you mentioned, um, if you're more of that worrier, having a worry journal, get those thoughts on paper, close the notebook, put it away. Potentially adding a to-do list has been shown to reduce um, sleep latency, so make it easier to fall asleep. Do that right before bed, and what that's doing is it's offloading those thoughts off your mind. Um, gratitude journal has been shown to be good for sleep quality. Uh, so all of, those, all of those things are important, um, and even nutrition, you know, what you eat can have an impact on your sleep quality so yeah, thinking yeah. about your sleep in terms of across the entire day yeah. is a really great suggestion
0: and obviously when you eat too the time and you lose it, you know big massive meals right before bed isn't really conducive to great sleep Well, one thing i just definitely want to ask you about before you have to go is napping okay like is napping healthy you know it should, should someone outside of an elite athlete or someone who's a lot of training load should someone really need to nap if, if they're not getting enough quality sleep, you know, throughout the night? Like if, someone, like if someone is hitting that seven to nine, maybe even nine and a half, ten hours, and, you know, they're getting the, and I suppose it's not just about quantity, it's the quality of sleep too, but should someone be able to get all the sleep they need in one, in one bout of sleep and not need to nap?
1: Mm-hmm. Generally, generally those who nap versus those who don't, even with a sufficient amount of sleep, perform better during the day. So, um, the, the key though is you don't want to time it too late. So you want to time that nap, um, in line with your circadian rhythm dip. So, you know, a normal sleep schedule, you get the dip around
0: 1 1
1: PM. p.m. Yeah. 1 to 3 p.m. So you want to time that nap prior to that. You don't want it too close to sleep because then you may impact your ability to fall asleep. But in general, um, Oh, there's been, you know, some headlines showing that napping is bad, but the it's those type of epidemiological epidemiological studies where it's correlation and typically those who are sick and suffering from disorders, you know, they're sleeping a lot at night and also they may be napping during the day and there's a reason for that. It's because the quality of their sleep is poor and so in general, absolutely take advantage of that nap, um, and it's been shown to improve performance.
0: Have you helped people utilize certain sleep strategies to enhance certain aspects of performance? So kind of what's comes to my mind, like, is to enhance cognitive performance, you know, like, and even memory, um, memory recall retention, you know, so kind of like if someone was studying to maybe time up, you know, a study period with maybe a nap afterwards to kind of consolidate what they've just learned. Or if they have a very important meeting or presentation, maybe to have a nap, you know, just before their presentation or whatnot to kind of, again, from a cognitive standpoint, have them, you know, performing at at the highest level possible. Have you any idea, thoughts on that? Or have you utilized any of those strategies? And just for your answer there too, I suppose, you know, the old famous story of, um, Edison he always used to use like you know his nap time as time to get creative he used to put the you know I, obviously I heard it from Matthew Walker but he used to put the metal balls in his hand and he'd go to his and he put the did the, the, the whatever a metal tray underneath so that just as he was kind of getting into deep sleep, he would drop the balls and wake him up and he found that that helped him with his creativity
1: <laughs> yes I mean I don't I don't think we're quite there yet to prescribe um a type of nap or a duration. Again, you know, the our sleep architecture depends on a, a lot of different strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in general, so for example, if you've had a really tough workout, and you want to take advantage of more of that growth hormone release, that occurs, you know, typically after the 20-minute mark. So you may want to be taking advantage of that by taking a longer nap. Um, if you're trying to get more creative, again, a longer nap where you're getting into that rapid eye movement sleep, more of a full cycle nap, would be beneficial for those type of individuals, and um, those individuals who don't want to wake up feeling groggy you know that would be less that less than 30 minute nap so I think I I don't think we're quite there yet with prescribing a duration based Mm -hmm. on the benefits you want to get out of it but I think we can take um, general, general terms so short nap don't want to wake up feeling groggy longer nap get part of that growth hormone release and then creativity would be more of that full cycle, longer, ninety. I'm going to say ninety minute in air quotes uh, type of nap.
0: Listen, if there's one thing we can take away from this podcast, context is king. Yes. Uh, Liz, you have got three minutes, and I've got a boatload of other questions, so I'm going to have to get you back on at some stage. But just before you leave, can you give us your top, re- uh, your your top and current book recommendations? And then I have one more hmm. question, one more quick question for you, and then you, you got to skedaddle and get out of here. And um, so, what, okay. what what what's your top and current book? What are you current? And these these don't have to be just limited to what we spoke about today. They can be in any domain.
1: Sure. Um, currently, so a, a thing I didn't mention was for people to potentially read fiction before bed, um, and that's been shown to kind of you know not um, have more of that hardcore thinking so um fiction has you know reading fiction before bed is is really can be good for sleep quality and so for me i'm reading uh currently i'm reading dust bowl girls it was a um a basketball team in the 1930s and actually my great aunt was on the team so that was kind of my interest in this book um yeah so that's kind of currently what i'm reading um, as far as sleep books, Why We Sleep is a good one, um, but it, it's for those people, I think, wanting to get motivated on how to improve their sleep. I wouldn't recommend it for someone with poor sleep already because mm-hmm. I think that could lead to more anxiety about yeah. sleep. So in, those, in that instance, I would recommend um, Sink Into Sleep by Judith Davidson
0: mm-hmm. for those
1: people suffering from insomnia.
0: All right, Amy, that's absolutely fantastic. I'm definitely going to have to get you back on because I have a boatload of our questions here because I could talk about sleep, circadian biology, all bleeding day. But uh, just for people listening, where can they find out more about you?
1: So I'm on Twitter at Sleep for Sport and also on Instagram, same handle, and I'm trying to work on a website too, so...
0: I was just—I was just about to say, where's where, when are you going to get a website? So that's great to hear that you're doing it. So listen, I really appreciate in your time. I'll say goodbye to you offline real quick. Uh, for all the listeners, listen—you're spoilt rotten with all this information. But for now, peace.